This is like Philosopher King. Carrie Fisher's autobiography. This was a rough one compared to some of the more fluffy things we've been reading. But they still made out. Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world, and we're using books to stay connected. I'm Melissa Hansen, hopefully not failing my three children of my boy cat, my girl cat, and my condo. (laughs) And I'm James Earl, meditating on my two favorite poems of all time, One Art by Elizabeth Bishop and Bullet with Butterfly Wings by Billy Corbin and the Smashing Pumpkins. Amazing. It was amazing when I realized that that was where the title came from, despite all my rage. I'm not going to keep on going. That's embarrassing. I kind of wish that there was a Spotify playlist that just had the soundtrack to this book because she only names bangers. I literally Googled it and someone put it together for us. Oh, great, great. That's so good. I've been listening to it the past 24 hours. But anyways, <laughs> we should actually talk about what book inspired this great soundtrack. Yeah. This month we're reading All My Rage by Sabah Tahir. Yeah, I didn't know that song, James. I was more so anchoring on Florence the Machine. Oh, Yeah. Which is always good. I feel like I hadn't listened to Shake It Off. <laughs> shake It Out, not Shake It Off. I've listened to Shake It Off recently. <laughs> no, that's every day. That's, that's every, every morning. morning. for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Shake It Out is like so, to me, like a college song. Uh, it's like transcendent. All right. So spoiler alert. We're going to have spoilers for All My Rage by Saba Tahir. Yes. And there's a lot of plot here. So I'm going to try my best to do it in one minute. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'll count you in. Three, two, one. So we have two different timelines of stories. First, we have stories from um, Misbah, who is in Pakistan, and she is about to get married to her new husband and then see what life will take her. Then fast forward to where we are in California now, and we are introduced to her son, Salahuddin, um, and his best friend, Noor. Um, But they're not being best friends right now because she confessed that she's in love with him. And he's like, I don't know how to handle this. And so they had a fight and they are separated and they're not being friends right now. What brings them back together is Mispa, his mother, dies. And because they were both connected to her, they like rekindle this friendship um, while supporting each other through a lot of difficult things, such as Salahuddin's um, family, him and his father, his alcoholism, him potentially losing the motel that they own. And him um, having to take some desperate actions in order to like have money to pay off all their creditors who are like chasing them. And Noor's abusive uncle who is preventing her from applying to college. Yeah, I think we can fill in what happens after that. This book has a lot of plot. I don't know if it's possible to do it in a minute. No, it's like it is a lot of plot in every single piece of plot that you think is going to happen because it just gets worse and worse and worse. It's one of those like A Thousand Splendid Sons where it's just an elevator straight to the bottom. Yeah. So like given the context that you just established, a combination of uh, the justice system, systemic poverty, xenophobia, etc. lead to them both at court by the end. Yeah. And the framing device throughout all of it is One Art, the poem by Elizabeth Bishop, which is both an essay they're working on in English class together is an analysis of that, as well as between each section, you get another verse of that poem. So the rhyme scheme of the poem is a standard ABAB the entire time. This is a type of poetry that is used to uh, like keep a focus on something difficult and not let you turn away from it because the rhymes, the A1 and A2 rhymes have to be consistent throughout and like sustained oftentimes have a focus on things like death and loss and like things that you want to turn away from or like turn into similes or whatever. Um, But you can't because the the form of the poem forces you to stay focused on it. 
And that seems meaningful to this book. Right, because the framing of the book is so much about loss. That is what the poem is saying it's about. Mm -hmm. And then they talk a lot about loss and how you can interpret it from like different religious standpoints um, because they have a lot of ruminations on the Muslim faith as well as Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I, I was thinking about loss throughout the entire thing, but also what are things lost versus things taken? Yeah, that's a good point. Because like Mizba, you know, she's lost to an illness, but there are things like college acceptances or just opportunities generally that are taken or are prevented. And they're, they're things that like seem like they should exist or seem like you're on the path to them, but then you lose that possibility. And Elizabeth Bishop's poem also has that abstract quality to it where it's like you lose homes and you lose realms like one of the lines is and places you've meant to go there are these possibilities that then are lost and in a lot of the cases in this book there are possibilities that are taken so the experience is one of loss but there's also a justice element to it exactly i think the justice element to me was the interesting thing because losing things is such a framing of like well you lost it like it's your fault versus i think what we're actually saying is like a justice mind of like Things are taken from a lot of these people and things to certain extent then need to be given, which they talk a bit about, like giving is a very important part of the Muslim faith. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about there's a lot of like self-blame where Saladin's uncle is like and cousin's just like, well, you should just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and like, I don't have to give you a kidney. People just need to work harder. And I think we get so many examples of situations where these people lost something. Yeah. It was their own fault, but actually it was things that were taken from them that led them towards the slippery slope. So I was thinking about Ashley Saladin's girlfriend through it, and she had a really horrible childbirth that like really destroyed her body, and she's in now chronic pain. And so she ends up getting addicted to drugs. Mm -hmm. Or like you're forced to adopt a child. So Nora's uncle, right. his entire family dies in an earthquake, and now he's put into a situation where he has to take care of a six-year-old girl, right. which he never really wanted to do. Right. And so all the opportunities that he had are taken from him. Yes. And then for Misba and her husband, their child getting abused by a random guest at the motel. That's something that I feel like is very clearly taken from them, but like impacts how Saludin goes through the world. Right. And that all leads to the ending of the book where Saludin has his freedom taken when he has to go to prison. And they have, I mean, there's other there's other examples at the end, like the terrible, terrible xenophobic classmate that they have, Jamie. Fuck her! Yeah, she gets her college acceptance taken away from her in a very similar way to what we've seen in a few of these books where, like, justice is done because there's hard, incontrovertible, recorded proof of the person being the terrible person. Mm -hmm. Which seems like the only way, given the books that we've read anyway it seems like this is the only way that people in power ever lose their power is that their secret recorded i know i'm like do i need to get a dash cam like i'm yeah, just like right. i feel like it's yeah. the only way to get justice in this world i always imagine that recorder that um macaulay calkin has in home alone 2 that he carries around everywhere definitely and technology has not changed since macaulay calkin was a child this one was on I don't know. I imagine it being on TikTok or something is how she gets busted. Or Pixelgram or whatever the fake Instagram. Pic yeah, Pictogram. <laughs> Pictogram. Right. So justice obviously is a through line through this entire thing about what, what people deserve and what, what fairness looks like. In some ways, it reminded me a lot of the book Little Fires Everywhere, where there's this constant tension between justice and fairness and the differences between things that humans cause that are unfair and things that are just like cosmically unfair 
like Ashley, for example, she has a child and now she's got chronic pain for her whole life. That's like a cosmic misfortune. That's like she's got back pain now forever. Humans didn't cause that. But the pain that Nyor has through the xenophobic behavior of Jamie, like that is that is human caused unfairness. The fact that, you know, she's overlooked for certain things or that Saludin is singled out by the police officer at their school all the time, like... These are human-caused unfairnesses, and then there are the, like, cosmic... Like, the world will be unjust in some ways that are not man-made. Yeah. I think there is also an element of... We have to understand the difference between those two things Mm -hmm. in order to, like, have empathy. If you look at people like Jamie, who's the super racist classmate who got into Princeton but insists on knowing Nora's scores on every single test, I think there's a difference, and I'm stealing this from Carrie Fisher's autobiography, Wishful Drinking, that I just finished, (laughs) a difference between, like, problems and inconveniences. Mm -hmm. And the issue being that racist pieces of shit like Jamie are viewing inconveniences to them as actual problems. Mm-hmm. They're making it equivalent. It's also similar to, as we're talking about, like maintenance phase. And I was reading Aubrey Gordon's book where she talks about like the self-esteem problems that straight-sized people experience. Those are inconveniences of self-esteem versus actual problems of being like misdiagnosed and mistreated by the medical system. Mm-hmm. I think this book does a really good job of showing that these are different and that there are real problems out there and that your inconveniences do not outweigh those people's problems. Yeah, totally. So on that topic of having empathy, um, given these like, you know, inconveniences versus natural injustices and man-made injustices and so on, there is like a recurrent theme of people trying to save other people. So like, obviously, Mizba is the central figure that does that. Basically, she's sacrificing herself and her own health to be there for her child, her three children that she has one boy one girl and one neither boy nor girl so Mizba is trying to be there for these three children but there's also Mizba's father-in-law who was a savior to his family and dealt with his wife's alcoholism or some sort of substance abuse and killed himself in trying to save her right and I mean Mizba maybe it's dramatic to say she dies directly because of this obviously her illness kills her but her inability to get the proper care is what leads to her death earlier than it should have been. Right, because she's trying to save the money to save the motel. She's right. trying to save her children, but at the expense of herself. Yeah, and and that exposed, I think, the larger theme of there's a bunch of times where like there's a savior or somebody, a mentor that needs mentoring or a savior that needs saving. Like Mizba needed, somebody needed to be there for her not just her being there for everybody else. And it was the same with Mispa's father-in-law. And I think there are other examples of this as well. Yeah, I think that there's an element of like a lot of saviors. I mean, obviously having um, a lawyer on your side who goes to your mosque is really great. But I think that there there is something interesting with the contrast of like people trying to save other people, but also failing them. I think that's also the framing device, right? Is like you'll have a son, a daughter, one that is neither nor the third gender, and you you will fail them all. And essentially, Misbah does fail them all. She does not help Saluddin work through the psychological ramifications of his abuse. Yeah. She does not save Nora from her abusive uncle. And eventually, they need to sell the motel because it is not financially profitable. Yeah. Man, what a heartbreaking prophecy that is to be set up at the beginning of the book and then have it to be executed throughout the book. The interesting thing there for me was there's like this sets up a couple different examples of foils in the book. So like Saludin's mom and dad, Amu and Abu are both foils for each other where they're both confronted with the same stimulus, the loss of his parents, 
the abuse of their child, the you know, the same sort of hardships. And one of them sort of walks away and like can't confront it directly and like leans out pretty far. And then the other one leans in too much, perhaps in compensation or whatever, but like both of them end up failing. Like the the right answer exists somewhere between those two. You can lean in too much and end up failing, um, and you can lean out too much and, and end up failing. The other foil that I noticed is between Chachu, Noor's adopted uncle, and Hadija, the wife of the man who runs the mosque, where one of them does something good, like Chachu, he takes in Noor and raises her and whatever, obviously not fully good. And then he expects something in return. Like he expects her subordination. He expects her sacrifice. And Harija is like very clearly the opposite of that, where she comes into the courtroom. And when she's told that Nora can't pay, is like, okay, she'll pay me later by doing this for somebody else. So there's like these very different reactions. And both of them relate to that, that theme of empathy where it's like, okay, somebody's struggling. You help. And then there are these very different responses, like lean in too far, lean out too far, expect something in return. And Hadija comes out as the moral center, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And I think there's also an element of giving is really important in the book, but there's also an element of asking and asking for help. Exactly. And that that's, I think, like Mizba leaning in too far to helping. She never asks for help herself. Except for in God. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where she ends up failing. I think there's also, like, obviously in this book talks a lot about, like, racial divides. Here are the white people. Oh, also, like, the fact that the drug dealer, his last name is Britman. <laughs> <laughs> and fucks over a bunch of Pakistanis. Like, <laughs> well, I see what you did there. I didn't, I didn't catch it. Thank you for <laughs> pointing that one out. That's pretty good. Britman. I was like, yep. Yeah. Got it. Uh, That's great. Man. Um, but what's nice about the lawyer and her husband is they do talk about because she's black Muslim mm. versus he's Pakistani Muslim. And there is this idea of their religion working across the racial divides. And there is something about like even like similarities in faith. Like Salahuddin makes friends with this guy named Santiago, who's like a Christian mm-hmm. in jail. And they're able to sort of find like a similar view on like loss and there, there there's these ideas of these like arcs that are able to work across these different divides like if we're willing to meet each other there yeah santiago was a great character too just this like philosopher sage that shows up in all the prisons yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't happen to be assigned to the same prison yeah <laughs> after yeah. being assigned to the same jail right this like philosopher king with meaningful tattoos yeah it just seems to have all the wisdom um, another character I really liked was Ashley. Like she just she she shows up, man. Yeah. She subverts what is typically the opioid addict in books, where like you know you hear these things. I think as a reader you start to have a bias where like oh she's just like scamming people for drugs. Like the first couple interactions you see her like through the first like third of the book is her putting people in uncomfortable positions because she's trying to get painkillers, and so you have this like really negative response to her i think but by the end she like shows that she is really empathetic towards saludin and and the way that he needs to be in the world and she's really protective of him and she's protective of her kid and i don't know she like does care for a lot of people other than herself whereas in the first third i was thinking about her she's also the one standing in the way of the ending that you that you want to see the entire time like you want those two to end together and she's the girlfriend that's standing in the way Mm -hmm. so like positions her 
in all these negative ways. But by the end, she's a savior. She's a mentor figure. Right. She's the one who takes down Jamie, the racist asshole, and prevents her from going to Princeton. Yeah. And she doesn't take anybody down with her. She was just a solid moral character by the end. I don't even know by the end. She could have been the entire time. Well, I think that's also like the hard thing of like where you are in the things that get taken from you. Like Ashley is also very early in her journey, right? Yeah. Her daughter is two years old. She's been dealing with this problem for two years of chronic pain. Mm. Like if we compare that to Saladin's dad, who has now been dealing with alcoholism ever since his son was abused when his son was like like two mm. and now the son is like 17. Yeah. I think there are examples of like where he means well, but cannot get to that place. I think that at one point they talk in the book of like, Auntie Misba used to say that God only gives us what we can handle. Mm-hmm. And the Iman is like, nope. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. And that is yeah. like the core of like jihad and struggle, mm-hmm. working through that you are going to be given things that you cannot handle. And that how do you ask for help? How do you, once you have the help that you need, then give it back to others? Yeah, and the end of the book really stresses the, just like being there to witness each other. And to, like, be aware enough of what other people need and to witness their struggle and to just be there for them next to them. Yeah, I feel like the core to me is this quote that I liked, which is from Noor. And she talks about when she sees the lawyer and the iman in, like, their relationship because it's, like, very, very supportive. Mm -hmm. And she says, I wonder what it's like to be with someone who can love you through your rage. Yeah. And I thought that was just, like, a beautiful statement of like that is the goal like all of us are going to have our elements of rage yeah some sometimes it might be anger if it's really your life is a bunch of inconveniences like jamie right but for people like of color people who've lost their parents people (laughs) who addicted to drugs all these situations you're not lost from society you're not lost from the people that care about you there are people who can be there to love you through what are uncomfortable and what feel like unfair situations and emotions they can love you in your rage. Yeah. And I mean, Mizbah loves Abu in his, I don't know if we'd call that rage. It doesn't seem like he's an angry drunk. He's a depressive drunk. But there's also her father-in-law. He loved his wife through her rage, for sure. Like that was definitely rage when she flips out and is constantly yelling about her past and about the way the world is. And he stood with her and like stood with her through her rage. And there's a quote that's in their death scene when uh, there's the electrical wires and the quote was something like, and the current took them both. And so there, there's that fear of like standing with somebody in their rage and then having it pull them down too. So I, I think that this is what makes this book so good is that it problematizes all this stuff where it's like there is no simple solution to how you respond to somebody else's pain. Like there are there are dangers to leaning too far in um, and standing too close to somebody in their rage. And those are things that maybe you have to do. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting also, like the current took them both compared to Mizba's quote they often are requoting, which is like, if we are lost, God is like water, finding the unknowable path that we cannot. Oh, yeah. The current, the water. Yeah. It just, oof. Yeah, that's a good parallel. And that, that I think, speaks to what I'm trying to communicate here, that, like, there are no simple solutions. Mm -hmm. There's no, like, oh, and here's the moral axiom that if you just follow this, then everything will be okay. Because this one confronts cosmic injustice. And it, like, shows the dangers of self-sacrifice that is unnecessary. And I don't know, there's a lot going on. Right, especially self-sacrifice that, like, results in you hurting yourself or hurting others. Yeah. Obviously, everything that happens to Noor with her uncle is horrible and tragic, and she is not deserving of that. And there's also this element of 
he did that one good thing Mm -hmm. that then caused him to descend into this person. Yeah. And there's the big self-sacrifice at the very end that we haven't even really talked about yet. That Mm -hmm. Saludin steps up on the stand and sacrifices himself so that Noor can have a future. Yeah. And he like really puts himself in some stress there. Like like one of his defining characteristics is that he doesn't like to be close to people or be touched by people. Um, he can't be hugged. And this is going to put him in close proximity to a lot of people yeah. by going to prison. Like he has more to fear from prison than the average. I don't know. I don't know if that's the right thing to say, but like... He's got a lot to fear from prison that's psychological as well as the usual things. It's stacked. And he's still, there's a self-sacrifice there. He could have fought to save himself. I kept on being like, oh my God, if I were his lawyer, I'd be so stressed out. I'm like, what are you doing, man? Yeah, (laughs) right. You got one job and he seems intent to undermine that job. Yeah. And I think it it ended as well as it could have. Yeah. Nora's able to go to UCLA Mm-hmm. He's only put to jail for like 18, 18 months. months or something. Yeah. Like Jamie gets screwed over on TikTok, pictogram or whatever. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm trying to think if the ending is happy. I, yeah. I mean, I think it is because like they end up together and they're supporting each other and it feels meaningful and that they have come out of it. They've survived this. And we end with there's a big thing about Misba wanting to be forgiven by her children. Yeah. So I do think there's an element of whether it's happy is whether or not her children are happy, successful, forgive her Yeah. for failing them. And we do end the book with knowing that Nora does forgive her. Yeah, that was a very clever plot device, too, with the forgive and... That we don't realize that she's asking to be forgiven, not to, not, it's not a command statement. And I feel like that's thematically relevant to like forgive as a command statement mm-hmm. um, versus forgive me as a request. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of her asking for something that she never asked for, you know, her refusal to ask for things in her life. This is like the final thing. So that that's like a nice little redemptive arc that they needed psychologically. And also, I believe that. When she becomes a doctor, she is going to pass it forward mm-hmm. and uh, that she's going to be a force for good in the world. So in those ways, like I, I see a good future. But man, it was a this was a rough one compared to some of the more fluffy things we've been reading. Yeah. I mean, we did get one makeout scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was after she had been horribly beaten and bruised, but they still made out. It was a nice that was a nice little scene, yeah, right before the darkest hour. I know. The entire time they were making out, I'm like, the cops are gonna come, they're gonna I see know, the geez. drugs. It's... It was like so stressful. I'm like, I can't even enjoy this makeout scene. No, because right before this you had the most intense abuse scene and yeah. right after it. Yeah. Then you had a scene where he was like taking all the drugs and putting them in the car. Oh, God. I was just like, oh, God, this is going to be terrible. Yeah. What do you think about his, like, trauma narrative? Typically, I, I'm a little frustrated when a trauma narrative occurs, and it's like, this person's behavior is due to this one trauma that they experienced. And I wasn't so annoyed with this one. This one seemed like it was a big enough thing. I don't know. I'm more interested in how his fear of physical touch resolved itself. It seems like he was able to overcome it in prison. I don't know if he was able to overcome it in prison, right? He used it as like a spidey sense. Mm. Okay. I guess I interpreted the ending of he was finally going to like try to work through it. Mm -hmm. But I get the tension there. He has to make a decision for himself because when Dr. Ellis comes, she's like, I want to tell you about your childhood trauma. And he's like, I don't need you to tell me about it. Right. I like in my body know that something horrible happened to me, but I don't need to remember the specifics. 
Right. But I'm going to use this information to figure out a way to work my way through this so that it doesn't impact my life. Yeah. But like there's not a prescriptive way of how I need to overcome this trauma. Right. That also is similar to what I was trying to say earlier about it, like problematizing things. Like solutions aren't necessarily the same over and over again. There's no like consistent right answer. So like in some ways remembering is good in this book and in some ways remembering is not necessary to overcoming. It's more about moving forward. Yeah. It just complicates the way we are in the world. Yeah. And I also think there's like, there's a cultural element here too that's interesting to unpack because I feel like saying like, oh, for all these situations, like call CPS, get involved in like yeah. super invasive therapy. These are very like white American mm-hmm. sorts of ways that you deal with bad things that are happening. Right. But you can't call people to the house or there's a hesitancy. Mizba calls CPS once mm-hmm. on Noor's uncle. And there's an element of like, we deal with this inside of our family. Yeah. I don't know if there's like a clear way. How how do you decide like what is the best intervention within the cultural norms that you have? Mm -hmm. And you're making your best call based on what you know of your own culture. Yeah. Like I'm saving you with the tools that I have at hand. So I'm saving you with the fact that I'm making you Pakistani food because your uncle won't will only let you eat burgers. Right, and watching that fun show that they watch yeah. together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is what it means to like stand by somebody in their age. That and listening to Smashing Pumpkins, I guess. Was there? Because I don't know the Smashing Pumpkins song. Oh my god, it's the it's the most dramatic song. It begins with "The world is a vampire," <laughs> and it only gets like weirder and darker from there. It's like the classic. It's like a poem a twelve year old would write when they were really upset with the world. But the chorus is, despite all my rage, I am still just a rat in a cage. That despair that comes with that, like your rage feels so powerful, but you're still just a rat in a cage. Like other people are still messing with you. You don't have anything. So it's very appropriate for this book. But What is the butterfly metaphor in it? Oh, the title of the song never appears in the song. Yeah, it just says bullet with butterfly wings. I clearly should have looked up the lyrics and like listened to the song. I was just listening to Florence the Machine on repeat instead. Yeah. But it was interesting to me also that um, Mizba's nickname is Little Butterfly. Oh, interesting. And the thesis song has to do with like butterfly wings. Right. Yeah. The title. That's true. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. This might not hold up to close reading, but but I'll, I'll think on it. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's look at an IB question for this one. Let's do it. So the one I pulled is memory feeds imagination. To what effect has memory been used in a work that you've studied? The first thing that comes to mind is Saludin's relationship to memory is that he, as we've said, when he's confronted by the therapist in the hospital, he doesn't want to know about his past. He would rather just to deal with the physical repercussions of it and understand how to go forward rather than to try to mine or remember like his body as you said his body remembers it his mind doesn't need to and so there's a relationship to memory there yeah and at the very end while he's in prison and is like very bored and is like reading all the books that Nora is sending him he also starts writing down all the memories of things that his mother had told him his stories. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an open question there of, are all of the sections where we get to hear about Mizba's stories, are those written by her son Mm -hmm. or those her actual perspective? Right. And I I like to think that those are his writings from prison, especially because that leads to the key insight that Mizba was asking to be forgiven, not commanding them to forgive. And that 
is like the redemptive arc of the whole thing. And so that that would make this question really meaningful, that by using his memory of all the stories he heard from Mizba, letting that feed his imagination, it actually leads him to these conclusions that are really useful, that are actually lead to action, like that he can act on and can help him understand his relationships with his mother and with Nur and with his father and so on through his imagination, like a combination of his memory and his imagination together. So I think that works really well. Yeah. Imagination is neither a necessarily positive or a negative thing. Imagination can help you work through your trauma and bring peace, like right in this narrative of the ending of the book is so much anchored in forgiveness of Nor needs to forgive her best friend, boyfriend, lied to her about the drugs and put her in (laughs) court. And the same with Nor forgiving Mizba for knowing that she was being abused. And so you're able to use all of that previous like trauma and experience and then work through it through your imagination to feel better at the end. Mm -hmm. There's also the element of, I thought it was really interesting that Nor kept on repeating the same two paragraphs over and over again about how her uncle saved her. Right, right. Th- that memory was anchoring for her. And like the idea of he saved me, he saved me, he saved me. So like I am in this, like I owe him something. Right, forcing herself to remember the goodness in these moments of terror. Right, like the imagination she's imagining is like he's still a good uncle. Yeah, that he's still capable of sacrifice. And ultimately he's not. Right, right. Um, is there something with the way that Abu and Mizba's mother-in-law, that they can't escape their memories, that they're just stuck in the past? Like Mizba's mother-in-law is constantly talking about her past life when she's in her age, and so she can't move beyond it. It limits the potential for her to see herself in the future in any sort of positive way, it seems. And that's certainly the case for Abu. Is he just drinks himself due to the memories of... Right. You want to turn off memory. Yeah. You want to turn off imagination. Right. Turn off memory, turn off his imagination. And that like prevents him from seeing himself in the future in any sort of meaningful way. Prevents him from dealing with the things that are going to impact his future. Mm-hmm. Also reflecting on like the first chapter where Mizba thinks about... She's like, I wished for a gentleman. I should have prayed for an unbroken one. Yeah. Jeez. This is a really rough book. Which is really rough. And then you're like, her son wrote this about his dad? Yeah. <laughs> right. right. If, you, if you do that reading, that's what that means. Yeah. And how do you work your way through memory is a recurring theme. Right. Allowing your imagination to see potentialities in the future, which is what Saladin does with his writing about his mother. Like mm-hmm. that's mining the past to see like a meaningful way forward in the future. So... Yeah. You want to read something a little more upbeat for next time? Yes. Maybe where like the makeouts aren't in between two horrific acts. Maybe just like, I, you know, I I know we complained that we had too many makeouts before. Yeah, yeah, we have, we have. But now I'm like, maybe. But to have the only makeout to be in between the two moments of the darkest hour. Right. It's like you need to alternate sometimes. You're like, okay, I'm going to watch Moonlight. Now I'm going to watch a Christmas (laughs) rom-com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You can't. You can't just do one of those. You have to alternate. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's alternate. May I suggest that we pick a book that literally just says a love story in the title? Um. Yes, obviously. I've never read anything by Dana Schwartz, but I know that I like Dana Schwartz on Twitter. She's a great podcaster. Yeah, I've never listened to a podcast, but I believe that. So I saw that she had a book out this year. It was nominated on the Goodreads for Best YA Novel, and it's called Anatomy, A Love Story. I love it. I love love stories. 
I don't know how I feel about anatomy, <laughs> but I like that people are bonded over common interests. Yeah, especially after our last book about a scientist that got a little steamy. The love hypothesis. Yeah. When do you count as a scientist? If you don't have your PhD yet, can you be a scientist? These are these are the tough no, questions. I, <laughs> these are the questions that lead to wisdom. Also, I know that we never really go back to our previous books, but I cannot believe we read that book and I didn't realize it was Raylo fan fiction the entire time. No, I didn't know that either. Star Wars is having a moment. The Love Hypothesis originally was a long-form fanfic about Kylo Ren, played by Adam Driver, in the Star Wars movies, and Rey. I, d- I didn't know that. I mean, I read about it afterwards and after our podcast. Yeah. I was just like, I can't believe I missed this. The main character's name is literally Adam. <laughs> Adam Driver. Jesus. I mean, a lot of people are named Adam. If I see Adam in literature, Adam Driver is not the first literary figure I think of. I can't believe that Adam Driver is not the number one Adam in your mind or your heart. <laughs> Name one better Adam. The original. The original man. <laughs> That's the... <laughs> That's where my mind goes usually. Fair, fair. Number one. Yeah. Literally. Um, so Goodreads described this book as a gothic tale full of mystery and romance about a willful female surgeon, a resurrection man who sells bodies for a living, and a buried secrets that they must uncover together. Is a resurrection man, I think they're saying that he, like, process of, like, taking them out of the ground is resurrecting them. But there is an element of, like, is this just Frankenstein? Sounds good to me. <laughs> if it is a Frankenstein-like novel, that's cool. That was a great novel. I hear gothic and immediately I'm like, there's got to be like a Frankenstein element. Yeah. For me, gothic usually evokes that the characters are going to be mostly unlikable, but that they're going to be fun. Yeah, but they'll also be like windswept on a moor or in like a giant manor. All right, cool. I'm excited about this. Yay! Well, I'm excited to read this with you next month. Literary Connections is hosted by me, James Earl, and Melissa Hansen, and we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading Anatomy, a Love Story by Dana Schwartz. See you there. Full of mystery and romance about a willful female surgeon, a resurrection... Uh, wait, uh, a resurrection... Resurrection man. Oh, that's his title. Okay. A resurrection man who sells bodies for a living and a buried... (laughs) I can't get through this. I can't say the resurrection man. I don't know what that means. You know, he's just like a resurrection man. (laughs)